Welcome to Mental Health Fridays with Marcy Tatro, that is me, and Jay Paul here, my co-host on 1420 KTOE FM 102.7 and streaming free live and worldwide on our website, KTOE.com. I'm a local clinical social worker here in town, um, and we are here today uh, for the community, so it's not about particular advertising for my agency, but I'm just one of many uh, social workers helping out during this time of crisis. We just truly want those who are in need to get help. Um, so if you are struggling, please reach out for help. There's lots of different resources out there. Some of the local ones are Prairie Care, Mayo, Nystrom Associates, Journey Towards Healing. If you are also in crisis, please call the, the local crisis uh, center, South Central Crisis uh, Center at 507-344-0621 or the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988 there's also a Veterans Crisis Line, 988, then press 1 when prompted, or text 838-255. If there's something you'd like us to add to the show, we'd love to hear any feedback. Uh, jpaul at radiomankato.com and let us know what you're thinking and how you're enjoying the show. Our special guest today is Dr. George Camaritis, PhD, LP, founder and director, licensed psychologist at ASC Psychological Services in Mankato, specializes in trauma and stress-related disorders, anxiety and depressive disorders, co-occurring substance abuse and mental health disorders, forensic examinations, and expert witness testimony. He works with adults and adolescents, uh, went to at Wesleyan University, University of Nebraska, has degrees, uh, a BA. MA, PhD, a licensed psychologist, and he specializes in holistic therapy, hypnosis, EMDR, prolonged exposure therapy, client-centered therapy, behavioral therapy, mindfulness therapy, and uh, treatment approaches include application of appropriate therapeutic principles to the individual needs of each client, and he is known for his fighting spirit and cheering for the underdog. And he's from New York. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I came to Mankato because I became a professor at Mankato State. Oh, okay. Cool was here through the 70s, which were the Vietnam era and the turmoil, oh, yeah. social turmoil College years. campus in the 70s. Huh? Oh, yeah. It was turmoil <laughs> completely, actually to the point where I, I truly got disillusioned with really? what I thought was going to be a wonderful Ivy Tower life. And, uh, and that was part of what got me looking into doing my own work and sure which i did is eventually i separated from mankato state and got into private work about the mid 70s uh, i i 
started doing therapy and um and then you know went forward never looked back I, it's been a wonderful career for me oh george what did you teach when you were at mankato as a professor well uh, psychology i uh, i taught um undergraduate courses as everyone does but i had the opportunity also to t uh, teach some graduate courses in areas that i liked and one of the areas was tests and measurements believe it or not i I enjoyed the I enjoyed statistics and testing, and uh, so I taught that and um, and of course in testing it's all of those psychological tests like the MMPI and so on. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, at that time, back in the seventies, do you do you remember what was the kind of like the psychology flavor treatment modality at the time? Well, you know it was different, and uh, I'm going to say something that you probably don't expect, but when I went through college, it was pretty rigorous. Uh, I remember I wanted to, I had a job at a junior college after my master's, and I wanted to get my PhD, and I contacted, I went to the University of Nebraska, so I contacted the department, and I said, you know, I'd like to come back and get my PhD, and uh, but I'd like to do that like summers and so on because I've got this good job here. And I remember the chairman of the department saying, well, uh, that's not going to happen because our philosophy is that you'll learn much more by being on campus and in this academic environment. And all I could remember is I got so upset with him, but then my choice was, well, either go or don't get your degree. Yeah. So I went. And it turns out he was completely right. I mean, so much of the learning happened talking about things with your colleagues. Uh, and at the graduate level, your colleagues happened to be the other students as well as professors. We'd sit in lounges and so on. I got involved. We did theoretical stuff, did a variety of things. So he was right. And, and it was a tremendous education for me. F emphasis in psychology back then was on research and particularly in the area of what's called learning theory, because learning theory is basically research on the very basic principles of how humans and all animals behave. And it's based on things like reward, punishment, uh, and so on. But we really had to go through learning theory uh, understanding. We had to um, also, of course, learn th theoretical approaches. Back then, Carl Rogers mm -hmm. was the in man. He, he was the guy who everyone liked. And opposite Carl was B.F. Skinner, and they were both alive and functioning at the time. And of course, B.F. Skinner was the behaviorist, and uh, Rogers was the... Uh, uh, client-centered yeah, uh, therapist, yes, the humanist. And and so there's this big battle between them. But I was fortunate in my undergraduate, our department at, at the master's level, our department was all <coughs> oriented towards Rogerian or, or humanistic th therapy. Yeah. I went out and I worked in the junior college for about three years, came back from my Ph.D., and the department had changed, and it were behavioral. It was behavioristic. So I really got deep training in both ends, <laughs> which was very helpful for me. Well, it's really interesting because I remember when I was in grad school back in 2000, uh, 
like I think it's 2009 to 2013, I did two joint masters, uh, masters of theology of divinity uh, from uh, I love school of theology, and so that's a lot of theory. It was, it was very theory based. And then the second one I did was my master's in social work, where it was like general social work practice, and they were te- te- teaching different theories. But even at the time, we'd say we were learning about Rogers, or we're learning about um, behavioral. So it's like, all right, pick one. It's like, why do we got why do we got pick one model? And so sometimes it it pits you against even picking a certain model when. Uh, I think a lot of us now today are like, not one model always fits every person, especially well, for it's, healing. Here's the, here's the key to good therapy is, first we have to know ourselves as a therapist because what I don't know about myself and have under control is going to be my blind spots when I work with a person. And I've seen, I, I've been a supervisor of many people. I've seen people, for example, if a, a person in their own personality has... Um, a, a, a real um, avoidance or, or uh, aversion towards, let's say, angry behavior. When a client starts venting, and maybe some of the venting includes the anger that has to come out, if you can't be comfortable with that because you never liked it or it bothers you or it causes you to get scared, you can't be effective as a therapist at that moment, at that time. And so you need to, as therapists, we need to understand ourselves. And secondly, I had to learn this. You know, they, <laughs> when I learned uh, in my master's the uh, client-centered therapy, I mean, it was, I, I would do treatment with people in our clinical lab at the, at the university, and then my professor and I would sit there and just analyze all the interactions that went on, mm-hmm. and he'd say, well, you should have done this and you this and that. So he was basically shaping my behavior, which is a behavioral term, and and getting me to sort of try to respond the way he thought I'm supposed to respond to be a, a, a humanistic psychologist. Well, the the problem was that didn't fit me. And then I remember I went to a conference one day and Carl Rogers was doing a presentation. He was showing his mode of therapy. He was the most direct, assertive, (laughs) in-your-face therapist I'd ever seen. And I went home and I said to myself, the hell with this. You know, I'm going to be me. Yeah. And uh, that was really a good lesson for me. So um, what we need to do is we have to find the therapeutic style that fits us. Mm-hmm. And if if it flows from you as a natural thing, you're going to be much better at it than if you try to sort of do this technological step-by-step stuff that you learned. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's like the cookie cutter textbook or it's like the, yeah. uh, it's just, it's like a step-by-step-by-step. And, uh, but, and clients also feel that way too. You know, that's the other part is like, um, what I hear from veterans too, they, uh, they don't want a textbook clinician at least that's what's oh, on, they know, want yeah. someone that's genuine yeah. and understands them that's pretty much it but but then again so does everyone you know i've told the people in my office that the best measure of your effectiveness is if the clients come back yeah yeah you know yeah. it is yeah so so the in my office you're okay if you can have the clients come back, and they'll only come back if they think that you're giving them something worthwhile. That's yeah. one of the things I think um, that our field 
needs to always put emphasis on, you know, none of us is uh, all-around specialist. Um, well, you know that I've worked with PTSD since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So if there's a specialty I have, it's that. And it's both veterans and also the what's nowadays called complex PTSD, but that's the PTSD you get as you grow up because of the circumstances that you're in and so on. Mm. But, um, but I think that uh, it's always important for us to know our strengths and limits and where we have limitations and a person has a need, we should be sending mm-hmm. to each other. Yep according to the strengths that we all have yeah. collaborating across fields collaborating across clinics and not yeah i think it's there's a part of about being ethical and serving the client yeah um if it's, it's the client's need that we're dealing with yeah um so uh the reason that i'm having george on the air today is because you've done a great work in the community you've been this doing this for a lifetime <laughs> and you've touched many many lives and today we're going to be talking about that Uh, pretty soon here and so um, George I heard some things from your clinic today that I'll be sharing with you and um, yeah so I'm pretty excited so stay tuned for a second segment we'll be back after the news yep coming up here news weather sports that kind of thing little farm news as well here on KTOE all right so welcome back uh, to mental health with Marcy and Jay Paul on Fridays here on KTOE we're excited because we've been talking with George here. Um, he has a ASC, C. Psychological here in Mankato. But um, as I was saying, George has touched a lot of lives. And from what we've heard, um, it's been pretty phenomenal, the work that you've done. And so to share that and to honor you today, we have a special guest we on do. a particular life that you have made a difference in. Oh. So, walking in the door is Mike Michael McLaughlin. Michael, Mike McLaughlin is here. Hiya, so, Mike. welcome, Mike. Thanks for helping us honor uh, George today. That's what we're doing. We're honoring George, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, I, is that roasting or? Yeah, I saw I'm that in his face. Feels nervous here. <laughs> <laughs> I should feel safe. You got a Marie in the room. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, the first segment we were just talking about, Mike. Um, a little bit about George's orientation to psychology. Uh, he was a professor at Mankato. Uh, and just kind of some of the things that he's learned along the way, um, what psychology used to say. Um, and then kind of we're heading right into more about either we can go back to New York and talk about how George became George and the fighting spirit for veterans and the work he's done today, and or we can go talk about ASC, psychological. So. Well, well, that's a good good prep for, I think, military services, team sports, and individual well, sports. Well, it is. It, it is. It gives you a, a kind of a strength of person, you know, and the ability to hang in. You, if you're going to win a game, for example, you've got to keep going. You can't stop, can't give up. And if you're in a firefight, you just cannot. Mm-hmm. You keep going. Can't until give up. And it's teamwork, over. too, is a good one. And teamwork <laughs> is, and that is comparable. You know, you're there as a team. You have to have each other's back. You have to trust each other 100%. And then you go out and you do your job, and it either works or it doesn't. Well, the same is true in team sports, you know? Yeah, correct. So, so when you think about who are your best friends, you know my best friends are still the guys I played football with <laughs> in high school <laughs> back when, yeah. and in college. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Shared har- hardship, shared experience, uh, yeah. uh, shared struggle. Yeah. That's a big part of it. I, th- I think if you surveyed 
uh, the men and women serving, most of them come from some sort of athletic or uh, sport background, maybe not necessarily team sport, but some sort of yeah. competition at, yeah. at some point. So Yeah, where you're forced to, to work to your max. Yeah, yeah, I get to tell that joke, though. I was more of a lacrosse player, but I got asked what position I played uh, for football in high school, and I said left out. And, left out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not everybody gets that one. So. Yeah. That is funny. Yeah, I mean, that's about nail on the head as far as what's available outside of uh, the VA in the area that's not, you know, government run or, or contracted. There are a few other, you know, providers, but they're, again, uh, their main revenue uh, stream for doing that is some sort of state or federal funding where um, ASC and, and Dr. George and his staff have been doing this work for, for decades, even since I was, you know, like a kid knee-high to a grasshopper. Uh, a lot of the Vietnam vets that I know and grew up around, I all knew that were, uh, I didn't really know what they were doing as a kid, but I knew they were in, you know, a group that seemed just kind of like a social club almost. Uh, it together. became yeah. almost like that. You know, we had a, we had a therapy group up in, uh, Red, in uh, Redwood Falls and uh, of World War II vets. Yeah. And those guys stayed together, yeah. and it did became, it, be, it was therapeutic in that we had one of our therapists always with them, so whenever issues came up, they were dealt with. But it was far more than that. Those guys bonded. They were mm-hmm. like a, another military team, but inactive. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's like, um, what I wanted to touch on too, is that, uh, <clears throat> George, you've been you've been working with veterans since Vietnam here in Mankato. Yeah. So can you walk us through it? Uh, share with us a little bit about how that happened and the fighting spirit that you have for our veterans. And it started off with our Vietnam ones. Veterans, the Vietnam veterans who was so badly treated on return to come to to the country. They were sort of like uh, attacked for going to war, and being called all kinds of things, including mm-hmm. baby killers yeah. and all of that. Mm-hmm. And and so they kind of rejected by the, the, the veterans organizations like VFW and, and, and Legion and so on in the beginning because the guys who were in those organizations were the World War II vets primarily who were proud of what they did because we, we gave them that pride or we, you know, supported that pride. And uh, but but here comes these guys with long hairs and beards and mustaches and raggedy clothes. And the World War II vets didn't accept them very well initially. So these guys pulled back from, the, from their support organizations. And then they went to the VA and they got similar treatment, so they stopped going. Well, that caused embarrassment to the VA. <laughs> so I got to tell you, the Vietnam veterans, because of, of their gutsiness and, and their perseverance, really made a lot of things happen in this country. Mm. And, I, and I give them credit for I watched it. I watched it. But because they didn't go, the, the government started worrying, what are we going to do? So they decided to set, set up the vet centers, which were essentially set into, um, in, into storefront clinics. So there was one up on, uh, what was it on, by the University of Minnesota. Oh, sure. Yep. Yeah, and um, I, anyway, so that clinic was set up, and they needed to have outreach programs. So they found out that I was already working with vets because they talked to the VA people. They came down, interviewed me, and they asked me to be involved. I said I would. So they started sending guys to me. 
And that's where we started doing our psychological therapy. It was the first groups that we had. Veterans are a unique population. They're human beings. They're the same as the rest of us. They'll respond well to our therapeutic techniques and so on. But their language is different, and their understandings of the culture that they came out of, the military culture, is different than than the civilian culture we all live in. And if you don't understand their culture, you're missing a lot. And that's what I learned. Yeah, and I, I think that's, uh, you know, not not just to pick out the, the people that aren't saying what, uh, or, or saying something that they actually didn't do, but to actually validate uh, and make a connection with the, the soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen that yeah. are actually in need of the help uh, and service where you have well, that rapport. Like when I... I, so I, I saw you a little bit when I first came home out of the Marine Corps, um, and then life got got crazy, and you know I learned uh, through the hard way that you know mental health isn't uh, a train track; it's a roller coaster, and you know that you're doing okay now doesn't mean it's you know probably not a good idea to you know stay up with somebody and have a primary care mental health provider. So, anyways, I, I went to VA before I saw you and. I had a, a counselor, uh, obviously, that you know hadn't had a lot of time, um, probably hadn't run any groups before. But uh, so, twenty-four-year-old, you know, just got out of out of the infantry in the Marine Corps, and back home, going to school, and VA sets me up uh, with a middle-aged, you know, uh, female that's not a veteran, no offense, uh, you know, and starts asking me and probing right away before really even a, a whole bunch of rapport is built. Uh, you get to the point where you know I start talking about some experiences after a couple sessions, and then the more anger side of it was coming out initially, and then the Kleenex box got slid across the the table, and I was told, "Well, it's okay to cry." And twenty four year old infantry marine is like, "I would burn <laughs> this place to the ground." <laughs> and you, I didn't come here to cry. It's cry okay to you? To cry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you know, I, I I walked out, and I you know I I ended up seeing you a couple times, you know. After, after that, I kind of, you know, triage and stabilize my transition uh, from the military and into yeah. MSU and school and civilian life and, you know, that, that whole well, side you, of it, you, too. And you did well in your adjustment. I uh, I still remember your stories, by the way, but <laughs> as I do your father's stories, too, yeah. about veterans. Well, the cultural competency piece, you know, you either live it or you learn it, and you yeah. ha- have to have time to learn it, and you have to have yeah. exposure to learn it. Yeah, you don't have to be in the military to get to understand it, yep. but you have to get to understand it. Well, that's what I mean, the mm-hmm. learning part of yeah. it. You know, like you, you learn through that exposure, you learn through uh, listening, yep. you learn through asking yep. questions when the, the time comes. And that, you know, th- those groups that started, um, you know, at least for this, you know, niche area, Greater Mankato, North Mankato, St. Peter, I mean, a, a lot of, you know, the, the, the hardened, you know, combat vets in the area that, you know, the post-9-11 generation, you know, the 80s and uh, late 70s babies, you know, that came out of those Vietnam era uh, folks, you know, uh, it, I, I think it kind of normalized that in our general community, it's, it's not a, a bad thing if you're a vet. You know, no. to to have some sort of um, you know group to to talk about it to to seek uh, help. I'm just mm-hmm. talking for this general area, and that's because of the the clinic in town here. Well, I want to say so. I'm going to put a plug in for these guys. I, I've known a lot of veteran service officers, and we've got kind of the latest wave of them in a variety in a number of our counties around this area. 
you and and some of these other fellows that are all uh, uh, veterans of the Middle Eastern wars mm-hmm. that, that we've had. And uh, these guys have really brought back some real strength into those services. Now we've got people that that are driven to help others, mm-hmm. and it's changed significantly. What veterans really want is someone that is uh, kind, uh, listens to them, and just understands where they're coming from. So when I was at the Denver VA, the World War II guys, we had a couple there, um, and then we had, I worked with Vietnam veterans, and then there was a, some of the younger ones from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, vets that we had. But now there seems to be more support uh, for the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and they didn't have as the the backlash that the Viet, the Vietnam oh, veterans have. Which was a, it, there is. And, and I'll tell you what, we have to give credit to the Vietnam vets. 100%. Do you know, here's how it went. They came back. They used to be spit on when they came into the airports. That. They used to be... Uh, uh, just degraded verbally in all sorts of ways by the anti-war people and so on. Uh, they they and our police at the time were the two kind of groups of people that were attacked for all of our ills of society back in the 70s. Uh, I'm going to divert a little, but another psychologist and I got a a, a fairly sizable Law Enforcement Assistance Act, LEAA Act grant to train all of the cops in this state in stress management back in 78 or so. And we, we trained a whole bunch of them all the way from DNR agents to cops on, on our reservations to the big city, to the little city, to sheriff's departments, state troopers, the works. And... Uh, and the reason that we did it, and a lot of them needed it, is they were so under stress, they were so attacked in their ways, that the statistics on alcoholism, or which was usually the drug of choice for cops, was like around 80% if you were there for two or more years. Those are the kinds of problems we encountered. So I watched... I watched the veterans, this was the cops. With the veterans, we provided all this therapy that we're talking about. But they had to fight their way to everything. They had to fight their way against negative public comment and views. They started, first of all, they tried to hide. So they tried not to talk about being in the service or any of that stuff. A lot of them actually came back and they would tell me, you know, I came back, I went to my parents' house, and I went down in the basement, and I didn't come out for a couple of months. I just stayed there. I couldn't even want to look at society. But then they started kind of coming around, and they started doing marches. I remember on, like, Fourth of July and so on, you'd have these guys get together, and they'd be in their boonie caps, their military, old military uh uh, wear and they'd wear that and they might have beards they look like pretty raggedy but tough guys and they'd get into these parades and they'd march together and that was the start of it then then they started getting invited to other things and eventually we had the uh, the war memorial set up in Washington that became a big deal all of that came because of them pushing back like I said, the uh, vet centers were a part of that. And these guys eventually, 
I'd say within 10 years after they started pushing back, we started having people saying, thank you for your service. That's where it started. And, and luckily, it's never ended. So today, I, I've been on an airplane and someone will say, thank you for your service to a guy that's boarding or, or um, someplace else in public. And I, you know, I think that it had to take that, but at least we're there. And we, whether you like war, agree with it or not, the, the fact is, is any man that goes out, or woman today, and puts themselves on the line is, is doing something that's, that's uh, courageous. And I, you got to give them credit for that. Mm-hmm. You know, it shows character. Well, and that, that experience and, and those uh, exposures for Vietnam veterans and of that, that time period is definitely what we reaped the benefits of their results you know, for Iraq. Yeah, and hopefully we'll not forget that. Yeah, um, you know, I would, I would say there was times, and it was probably a little bit more raw for me coming home. But even I remember um, in the, the presidential debates, uh, debates between uh, Obama and uh, Senator Obama then, and then Senator McCain, and then it just being a, a, a public oh. talking point that the Iraq War never should have happened, and the whole. And you can go down that rabbit hole, but being a uh, you know mid twenty year old that was home and still trying to navigate my side to be told, you know nationally on television from essentially both leading candidates that what I just did should have never happened in the first place, even though it wasn't my choice to go. It was my choice to enlist, but the country well, sent us there. You know, it was a little bit. You have me thinking. Wars were real wars, where the only objective was to win. There was no other objective. You don't go to war if you're not going to go to win. Korean veterans came back. Their biggest argument wasn't that they were spit on or attacked or anything. They were ignored. Mm-hmm. They People, I, I talked to some vets and they'd say, by the way, Vietnam vets did this, told me this too. They'd say, you know, I came back to my town and I was walking down the street and a guy said, hey, where you been? I haven't seen you for a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the, that's the best they got. Yeah. Because wow. life back home continued uh, while, while yeah. they were gone. And I, yeah. I, I would say there's probably a, you know, that's been a reoccurring theme since Korea is, you know, all my, um, you know, friends that didn't serve, the vast majority of them, uh, you know, that stayed here, went to college, lived. Uh, first class, you know, Western world, you know, uh, society got to party, go to school, do whatever, yep. you know, they, they wanted to without any, uh, squabble over you know their their rights and their freedoms um, and you can't you come back from uh, seeing parts of the world that that's not necessarily a given that uh, your yeah. life matters that your voice matters that your uh, ability for yeah. self-autonomy matters and you come back uh, to the privileges that we have here um, and you have a different skew of how that looks you, you have too. a whole different view you know in PTSD one of the criteria is a change in your perception of the world and and so on and it truly happens i mean how can you stay in the mindset that you have as a an american safe american citizen that never traveled anywhere if you go to a third world country and watch people who are starving and living in huts and without electricity and so on and so forth and then watch destruction of human beings, not only killing, 
but I mean torturing and and uh, all kinds of just the worst things you can imagine. How can you come back unchanged? Sure, mm-hmm. and that's I think I think you've touched on it before too. But that's the moral injury side of it. The moral you're... the moral side of it is, uh, it, in my opinion, has been the hardest thing for a lot of veterans. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to have memories that keep wanting to come back and mess up your sleep or your thinking during the day or whatever, but it's really harder when you just cannot make sense anymore out of things that you thought were mm-hmm. for real. You can, know. can you explain for the listeners uh, the term moral injury? I mean, I brought it up on the show a couple, like, I don't know, a month or two ago, but... Um, well, there, there are several different ways of explaining it. Did you want to say no? Okay. By all well, means. one way is is it's it's uh, it's a taking away from you the sort of comfortable belief system you have about how the world is and how you fit into it and how people fit into it. And once you see stuff that does not support that vision that you grow up with. It rattles you to the core because it, it, it's sort of like what you see and what you believe it isn't true anymore. So what is? Yeah, it's shattered and, and, or broken. And, and, and what you saw doesn't make sense. It's horrendous. It's, it, it has no moral or ethical components to it. It's, it's savage. So how, how do you come back to this civilized world with that awareness in your head and try to make it all work together. They, and so they call it the readjustment problem right. for veterans. They all face a readjustment. Isn't it difficult to come back out of a military position? Yeah, I mean, that's so post-traumatic stress gets thrown out a lot as, you know, awareness efforts and everything got, uh, you know, thrown out there, which is, is good to create awareness for it. But one of the most common uh, diagnosed uh, conditions that I see for veterans coming home is chronic adjustment disorder. Yeah, uh, is a big one. And yeah, uh, that paired with uh, generalized anxiety yeah. disorder. Well, I think I think we see that today too with some of our Iraq and Afga- uh, Afghan. Oh, that's true of all soldiers. Yeah, yep. Just like uh, there's the the shorter fuse. You know, like yep. um, you want a, a project done right, done right the first time. You know, and then yep. if it doesn't happen, you see some irritation in the workplace. Oh. Well, irritation. I think a, a big thing that's kind of you know, inculcated in, in the military and then comes out, you know, even more in, in combat of why it's so important is that, um, you know, personal accountability uh, for your actions. Yes, you're working on a team, but you are so tuned into that uh, a failure, if it happens, it's your fault and you own that failure, uh, even though as part of a team. Um, and well, and you're part of a team, so then you feel responsible yeah. mm-hmm. and that you're sharing the failure. Well, in the shark tank you're in, you know, in the military, you know, in that, that type of environment is, I mean, your counterparts too, especially on the training side. And then, you know, in combat too, uh, when a, a blatant, you know, error or mistake happens, I mean, the people you're serving with will sure as hell call you out on it and let yep. you know because that, that's the only way you get – get better is by exposing you know that uh you know problem exposing that failure and that weakness yeah it's it's called feedback for correction yeah Yeah. but we can do it in good ways and hard ways yeah um so uh today george i did get some feedback actually about you um so here are some interesting things uh your office 
told me that, uh, and this is, I think, pretty amazing, someone that you worked with over 40 years ago said that you had saved his life and that he had called back to see if you were still working and in practice because of the difference you made in his life over 40 years ago. You know, yeah, I know, I appreciate that. But that's that's not the only thing they told me. They also told me that if it wasn't for George... Uh, they said very, very often they get calls from different veterans that you have helped that, that said that w- they would not be here. They're, they would not and be here today if it wasn't I, for George. I, I, I want to tell you, I, and they've said that to me. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, that's a very humbling thing. I, I don't know how you respond to that. You know, you, you thank the person and then you just feel like, uh, you know, you're giving me so much credit or power. But... But what I do realize is, you know, I did help them, and that's what they're thanking me for. But in a lot of veterans' cases, it felt so strong and so hard that their option was, you know, things like suicide or dying. And and uh, so when they say that, it, it, all I can tell you is, that you, you know, you're thankful as a therapist because... It's a confirmation that you've been helping somebody, mm-hmm. uh, but it's humbling as hell, too. Well, and George, that says a lot about you as a therapist and that when a veteran starts talking, we listen. And this is a huge point for the public. And if you're listening right now, you have veterans in your life, combat veterans have served. When they start talking, you want to be quiet because that doesn't happen very often. And so when they choose to open up, take that time, be humble, listen to what they're saying, and, and be there for them. And... It shows, like, in all the feedback you're getting and from the from the veterans that are saying that you saved their lives, Georgia, it speaks a lot about who you are as a person and as a man and your approach of, that you have used with veterans about being yourself. Back to what you said in the very beginning, um, it's important that you're yourself and you find your way of being authentic to who you are because actually that's more powerful than anything. And so, so, George, thank you so much for your lifetime dedication to what you've done. Um, and the, all the veterans that you've helped save and the impact you've made on the community. I also know he's done a lot more for our community that we've mentioned. He's just done a lot of forensic interviews and evaluations and commitments for the state hospital, things like that. So uh, we barely even touched the surface today. But, George, thank you so much for what you've done on behalf of the field of uh, mental health oh, as, a, um, as a, a fellow colleague in the field with the cause. And I also work with veterans. Thank you so much for what you've done. And any words from Mike? Thanks, George. I think that about sums it up. I, I think he's about the only, um, you know, a psychologist or mental health counselor I've ever ran into that uh, could step for step return my curse words. With more <laughs> so, I always appreciate. I, it. I learned them on the streets in New York. <laughs> but, but I want to tell you something. You know, I thank you. Thank you for for the kind words. Uh, I, I have to say, I have felt like my life was blessed by what I went through. My work with veterans was probably one of the most outstanding things that I could point to. And I've said to people before, if I came back again to repeat it, there's a lot of things I'd change, but I would do the same career. I, nothing about it that I would complain about. Enjoy this song. This is for you, George.
our brotherhood.